The Fanboy, episode 93. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 93 of the Fanboy Podcast at long last. How is everybody doing out there? It has been a bit, hasn't it? But you know what? Let's hit the ground running because it's Avengers Endgame Day, everybody. It's Avengers Day. And you know what it is for me? Whenever there's one of these big movies, it doesn't matter which franchise really, whether it's Marvel, whether it's DC, whether it's Star Wars, to me, days like these are a holiday. Because if you think about it, with the amount of time that all of us fanatics spend obsessing about these movies and reading all the articles we can about them and, you know, <laughs> micro psychoanalyzing every little scrap of information that comes out, and we look at all these trailers and all these TV spots and we read all of these tantalizing quotes and our minds and our imagination start to wonder about, oh, well, what's it going to be and what is it going to be like and what is it going to lead to and what is this a setup for? You know, the, the, there's so much energy that goes into the buildup to, to the arrival of a movie like this so that whenever it's anything. You know, in years past, I think about the, I get this big event feel. I felt it for like The Force Awakens. I felt it for Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice in a way. I felt it for, I mean, I felt it for a few things. You know where I'm going here. You know, whenever there's one of those big movies, to me personally, it's as good as a calendar holiday. You know, it, it, for me, it's like I walk around with that feeling of today's a special day and I've got a little pep in my step because there's going to be another awesome movie out today. And uh, yeah, so it's Avengers Endgame Day today. And later on, I'm going to be witnessing this film surrounded by a bunch of wonderful people, a combination of Revenge of the Fans contributors, as well as supporters and listeners of the site and of our podcasts. And I've even got one very special guest, and that's Mr. Brandon Alvarado, who that is my cousin who lives in Florida, who's flying up here to New York just to attend the Avenger watch party for Avengers Endgame. Oh, that was a tongue twister. But, uh, you know, I mean, what an honor is that? I'm picking him up from the airport and, you know, I'm going to have my little cousin here. And he was always been like my cohort. Before there was a fanboy podcast, there was Mario and Brandon talking about all the cool stuff happening. Because even before I was a blogger or a podcaster, I was always just that person who obsessed and read every scrap of information and scrounged every website to find out all the insights about these movies. So I've always been like the hookup. But before there was a Latino review for me to speak on, before there were any of these other outlets, I was like the hookup from my cousins and from my friends and who would all ask me, hey, isn't so-and-so making that movie? What's the deal with that? And I just... My brain was filled with useless information. But Brandon and I would often go into these long conversations into the wee hours of the night talking about this movie or that movie or what this meant or some cool way or, or what, what my dream Superman movie would be or his dream, you know, anything would be. It would just, you know, it, it's going to be cool now to have Brandon by my side 
at a Revenger watch party for for Avengers Endgame. It's going to be a little bit surreal, and I I'm very very much looking forward to it. And if you know, for me, this movie, you know, it, it's hitting me now. If for anyone who listens to the Revengers podcast, you know, on this week's episode, you know, Brett, Vanessa, and I were talking about Avengers Endgame, the fact that you know this is the big week, and how are we feeling, and where's our hype. And at the time, you know, I, I kind of predicted that I may not feel it until the day of, because for whatever reason, my, my long range hype for Marvel movies is, is kind of gone down. Maybe I'm kind of taking them for granted. Maybe, you know, it's uh, it's it's starting to become old hat after 11 years. So, you know, I, I pointed out on, on the Revengers that like I wasn't feeling that excitement just yet. But I have a feeling when the big day comes, it's going to hit me like a ton of bricks. And lo and behold, that has happened. My, I am ready. I am hyped. And, you know, when, when I think about this, you know, I think about the humble beginnings, you know, because I remember, I remember hearing that like Marvel Studios had become its own thing, finally. And that's the thing, like, I, you know, I was following Marvel's, you know, cinematic development for years, even in the 90s as, as a kid, as a geek reading Wizard, you know, magazine and, and you know, just, <laughs> just being a, a garden variety nerd before that was kind of cool and in. But back before it made me one of the cool kids at school, back when it actually made me, you know, the, the nerd who got along better with his teachers than he did with his classmates back in that era. I remember hearing stuff about how Marvel was having all kinds of trouble and that like they might even go bankrupt. I, I remember back in the day, you know, hearing about James Cameron wanting to pitch a dream Spider-Man movie. He'd written this treatment he was really high on and he was going to pitch his perfect Spider-Man movie, but he couldn't because Marvel did not have their act together and they were on the verge of bankruptcy and there was some stuff where they'd given the movie rights away. And remember, this is before it became very sort of known and obvious that Marvel Studios had kind of sold off all their babies you know that like you know, some some of it went to Universal some of it went to Fox some of it went to Sony you know that there was that weird sort of era there where Marvel's just all of their properties were all scattered around and I just remember hearing like wow Marvel's almost bankrupt oh I guess things are dodgy for them and this is in the late 90s to then fast forward now, you know, 10 years later to hear that there's going to be a Marvel Studios and that they had secured financing. Because remember, this is pre-Disney. They weren't always Disney. I think sometimes people forget about that. Marvel Studios started off with like a grant. I forget the name of the company now, but they'd been given some sort of like, not a grant, but like they, they'd, been, they'd been given financing to make, and, I, and the initial plan, as I remember from the initial reporting on it, was to make 10 films at $100 million each. For some reason, it's like you know, they had been given, my math is all screwy, they'd been given whatever 100 million times 10 is. Is that is that 100,000? I have no idea. I'm not, I'm, it, by the way, folks, it's about one in the morning uh, on Thursday night. And I'm recording this now because today, actual today, is my mother's birthday before the Avengers Endgame watch party. <laughs> So the first half of my day is getting Brandon from the airport and then celebrating my mom's birthday and then getting out to Long Island for the watch party. So I'm kind of in marathon mode. So I'm sorry if I, I don't know what 100 million 10 times is, but somebody please tell me. But either way, I remember when that plan was first announced to make like 10, you know, 10 films at $100 million each and that their plan 
was to introduce four heroes one by one in their own films, then have them all meet in an epic Avengers crossover event. And I remember hearing about that and I was like, no way. You know, <laughs> that's like, that's way too good to be true. I mean, that sounds like the fever dream of a 13 year old boy at the lunch table. You know, that sounds like the kind of thing you make up to amuse yourself while reading comics as a kid. Like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if this happened at the movies? You know, so I remember three, I was a little skeptical. I'm like, okay, that sounds like an epic plan, but, are, you know, will, the, will, 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 will pop culture be interested in that sort of thing? Or will that be too geeky for them? Or, you know, or who, you know, what's to say, you know, comic book movies have been a little hit or miss in terms of quality and the way they've been accepted at theaters. Who's to say that the first two of these movies aren't terrible and the entire thing just goes belly up? You know, so I was very sort of skeptical. And then it began. You know, step by step, little by little, you know, this wonderful sort of experiment started to unfold itself before our eyes. You know, I, I remember seeing Iron Man at the Midway Stadium in Forest Hills on opening night. And I remember walking out after that, you know, after having just witnessed that Nick Fury tease at the end and thinking, no, actually, they're actually doing it. Like, okay, it's one thing to have heard about this plan a year and a half ago, but to now, like, see the movie, have thoroughly enjoyed the movie, because Iron Man is a kick-ass superhero movie, and Robert Downey Jr., man, you know, it's, he's, he's on another level in that, he carried that thing, he, that, he is that movie, but, you know, I just, I enjoyed the heck out of the movie. And then to have that Nick Fury thing. And, and it's Samuel L. Jackson who looks just like the Nick Fury from the comics and, you know, presently at that time. I remember just thinking, this is the coolest thing in the world. And I hope, I hope, I hope the rest of the world, the non-geeky fanboy world, I hope everyone else goes for this. And then, thankfully... <laughs> that's exactly what happened. You know, Iron Man became this runaway success and suddenly we were off to the races. And to think now, here we are over 11 years later to have a film that by all accounts, you know, by the way, I've really been avoiding reviews. I know that the, the general consensus seems to be very positive, but I'm so weary of anything that could even remotely be a spoiler that I, I don't know, you know, how glowing things are. I don't know if people are in love with this movie or if they just sort of, it's okay. But I've just gotten the sense that the hype is good. So I'm like, I, you know, it, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. You know, it, in one way, shape or form, this is probably the final time we're going to see all these, all these characters together on the screen in this sort of way. And to have, you know, have, have witnessed every step of the way and the careful plotting of this universe to then now finally come, you know, see it come to a head. This is going to be pretty heavy, Doc. And, you know, I, I remember, I remember last year, my Infinity War, my, my little, my little roller coaster ride with that film where I initially was left very kind of like, mm, I don't know. You know, something about it just didn't sit well with me that first time. And then Brandon, by the way, coincidentally, was in town and we ended up seeing it together. 
and I saw uh, you know, Avengers Infinity War a second time after talking about some of my issues with Brandon and you know, not like not with Brandon, talking about my issues with the movie with Brandon and uh, and him kind, of sh- him kind of sharing his own little insights on it. And this time when I watched it, I experienced it anew. And I walked away feeling like Infinity War is actually a monumental film and just an incredible achievement. And uh, now to get to see the second half of that story is just, I mean, even if you removed all of the other stuff that makes today cool, with it being a watch party, with Brandon flying up here, with the fact that, like, you know, I've been writing about this movie for years and now I get to see it. You you remove all of that stuff and even right down to just at its very basic core, the fact that I get to sit in a darkened room and witness this movie today is just all kinds of epic for me. So uh, this is the kind of stuff that I live for. (laughs) But, um, okay, so I've been gone for about a month and there there's some things that have come up that I kind of want to just touch on here with you. You know, there are things that I may have lightly touched upon on the Revengers, but there, you know, I really try not to sort of bogart the show, even though, you know, it happens sometimes because I can't, it's hard for me to shut up sometimes, but you know, there I, I really try to let Brett and Vanessa, you know, you know, shine, and so there's certain things that I only sort of you know touched upon there that I may I, I want to talk about in in a slightly longer form here today, and as well as some stuff that I didn't address at all because I know that it's not really a topic that they're very interested in, but um, all right, first things first, you know, since we last spoke, Shazam came. And Shazam kind of went. And, you know, I'm still kind of scratching my head about that. You know, I I, I wonder where the... Uh, like, something missed the ball here. And I don't know what it is. It wasn't the movie, by the way. If You know, just in case you, you don't listen to The Revengers. Uh, what I've said there about Shazam is that I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it was really, really good. To me, it's a B plus, And, you know, it, it's a very, very strong recommendation from me. Um, yeah, there are things that I, I, I kind of wish it would have been, you know, I feel like there were a couple of times where it was a little bit like it, it could have gone deeper. It could have really gone for the heartstrings. It could have really gone for that emotional knockout punch. And instead it went for the joke. You know what I mean? It, it, it was a little almost too jokey for me. I understood they wanted to keep it light and fun and it's, you know, big meets Superman and all that sort of stuff. I get it. But uh, at times it was just a little too silly and some of its bigger moments therefore fell a little flat because there wasn't enough of a a dramatic build to some of these things. So some of the bigger moments towards the end, it just, they didn't feel earned to me. But, um, But all in all, I thought it was a great time and, you know, I still thought that it was going to do tremendously well. But for some reason, you know, it's 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 doing all right. And listen, Warner Brothers, yeah, you know, this is not a flop. This is not anything, you know, this is not anything for anyone to be sad about. I just I think I had unrealistic expectations. I really thought that this was gonna pull like a Deadpool, where okay, it was made on a fairly low budget, but it's got such a cool killer concept 
that's so like outside the box and, and, and appealing to people who aren't even hardcore superhero fans that even though it's got a low budget, it would still perform like a big budget superhero movie, that it would still hit like 700 million. Because remember, you know, the uh, Deadpool cost like 69 mil and made like 670 or, or maybe even into the 700s. Like it did something unbelievable like that. And I thought Shazam was going to do that sort of thing. It's like totally overperform and blow everyone away. And ultimately, you know, it did all right. And right now, the people are hopeful that it's going to cross the $400 million threshold. And listen, at the end of the day, as long as we enjoyed the movie, that's all that matters, right? And I really shouldn't get caught up in the box office. But I guess for me, I do feel a little concerned because I know how reactionary Hollywood can be. And I know that Warner Brothers has this stuff going on with AT&T and, and there's, you know, the... Uh, it, I just... I hope that the executives don't suddenly get some kind of cold feet and suddenly veer us off course again. Because I think we're on the right track here. I think Aquaman into Shazam are a great step one and two for what the new worlds of DC is going to be under Walter Hamada's watch. I think we're off to a great start. And that's, you know, that's why I, I'm just, I'm a little nervous. You know, I guess, you know, at this point, if you're a DC fan and you've been following the development of these films for the last 15, I mean, in my case, I've been following DC filmmaking and you know, the, the, the stop and start and development hell around Superman, uh, around superhero movies in DC since about 1994. So I've got 25 years worth of DC development anxiety stored up. So bear with me here. But that's why I get nervous about Shazam, you know, maybe just squeaking its way past 400 million because I just hope some unreasonable studio executive doesn't suddenly go, oh, well, maybe we need to tweak the formula again or maybe we need to have, you know, I just like leave Walter Hamada alone. Let him do what he's doing. Shazam still only cost just under a hundred mil to make. So if it does around 400, then that means it quadrupled its budget. That's, that's a, in any, you know, in any book, that is a success story. So please don't take my concern as me trying to act like Shazam flopped or that I, uh, or that I'm instantly assuming that the studio is in panic. Cause I don't think they are. And if they are, they're completely irrational, but that's the thing. There are irrational people. If, there, if we've learned anything these last few years, it's that some of these executives have very itchy trigger fingers, tri trigger fingers, sorry. And, you know, things can sometimes change on a dime. So I don't want anything that's going to give anyone any trepidation about proceeding because I want to see where things go. You know, we got Shazam 2 already kind of, you know, there's already movement on that with a writer and everything. We know that Dwayne Johnson's already talking about getting Black Adam going. We know that, you know, hey, listen, having Superman's little faceless cameo there at the end kind of stokes the flames for, you know, hopefully getting some sort of Superman action going. And it's like, that's why, like, I feel like there's a lot of stuff sort of dependent on Shazam. Shazam is almost a little launch pad here for all this kind of stuff, for the sequel, for the Black Adam, for possibly something that involves Superman. So that's why I'm just like, come on, 
Come on, I want to just I want to hear that nobody freaked out about Shazam's box office. I want to hear that they're going to continue building and that then I will be able to sleep easy because I just I really thought that Shazam was going to be like a 750 million dollar monolith. And uh, I guess I, I was just caught very sort of off guard by the fact that general audiences were kind of like, you know, they enjoyed it, but they didn't, it didn't become some sort of event. I thought it was going to become more of a crossover mainstream event. And, uh, you know, that, that didn't really happen. And overseas, of course, you know, the big story is that <clears throat> it didn't have the usual, you know, spectacle. It didn't have the usual, and that, that, that is a product of the lower budget you know they had to be very strategic in how much action they included because all that all of that stuff is very expensive and overseas what they've come to you know ex expect and what they want like especially in china they love these high octane you know huge spectacle events these world-destroying, crazy, you know, larger-than-life superhero blockbusters. And Shazam is more of a, of a character piece, and it's more of a comedy more than anything. And its rhythm and its sense of humor and its general energy is very, very uh, North American. So it doesn't really translate overseas. So, you know, I, I guess I should have accounted for that when I had my sky-high expectations for what Shazam might do or what it might be. For the world of DC, but you know it is what it is, and you know just to kind of circle back to the Superman cameo because I guess I haven't really had a chance to really sort of talk about that anywhere. You know I haven't done this show since before Shazam came out, and over on the Revengers we didn't really talk about it much because we were avoiding spoilers. So I guess you know when I think about the cameo, I feel like I feel like it worked. I feel like it worked. I feel like for what they were going for, if, if you know, I think it worked. Had they shown his face, it might have been a little bit too, like it, it, people might have expected it to lead into a bigger scene and then the actual point of his cameo would have been lost. You know, the point of the cameo was Freddy's reaction. The point of the cameo was, you know, <laughs> Billy got Superman to show up to lunch, you know, like that, that is the, that is the point seeing, you know, ha having a scene with Superman afterward isn't really. So for, for that particular scene, I'm okay with it being faceless. You know, hey, my whole thing was if they were going to include Superman, be a, something more along the lines of the original plan, which as David F. Sandberg has, you know, now confirmed was to have Henry Cavill and it was his intention to have Henry Cavill in the film. Um, you know, my, my hope would have been like uh, an actual, you know, not a joke scene, you know, a mentor scene, a scene between, you know, Clark and Billy or Superman and Shazam where he's kind of teaching him the ropes or, or giving him that bit of the, that, that, that extra bit of advice. Cause you know what? I mean, it's funny because I feel like it had to have been part of the original plan. You know, David F. Sandberg won't really reveal he, he in recent interviews, he's kind of made it sound like he, you know, the cameo we got was the original cameo that he, you know, that, that, that he had in mind for Henry Cavill Superman. But I've heard things that refute that. And I have heard things that there was a scene that was a little more emotional. 
or not, you know, not emotional, but like it wasn't, in other words, it wasn't a joke. It was a mentor scene. And a part of me wonders if that's why the transition from act two to act three and Shazam feels a little out of nowhere. Like to me, it happens a little too easily, a little too conveniently. Because if you think about it, they're setting up that Shazam, that Billy doesn't necessarily know what it takes to be a hero. And he's using his powers for trivial things, for photo ops, to show off. But he's not using his powers for good. And he's not, you know, he hasn't learned that with great power comes great responsibility lesson yet. And something's supposed to happen that really kind of makes that whole thing click into place. And he kind of has his big hero moment. And, you know, I wonder if the Superman scene was supposed to be that. And then when everything sort of fell through, they kind of had to pivot. And honestly, I don't even remember what it was that was the turning point now. I saw the movie three weeks ago, and I don't remember what it was, but I don't remember it feeling substantial. Or I don't feel like the point of that pivot was given enough attention. Because that's an important character development beat. You know, they went ahead and established that he's being kind of immature with his powers and being a little selfish with his powers. And that is, you know, he could be doing so much better and so much more. And you've got to think, who would be an amazing messenger for that message? But Superman. So a part of me really kind of wonders, you know, you can file this under conspiracy theory. But I think there was meant to be a scene there and think about what a jaw dropper that would have been. And that makes me, you know, again, it's hard for me to get upset about something that I think was going to happen. But, you know, oh, what might have been, right? I think that would have been really nice. But all in all, it was still nice to see the Superman S. It was still nice to hear a, a theater filled with people go, oh, and then, you know, and it end on that high note and have Superman be part of a high note on the big screen. You know, me as a Superman nerd, you know, anytime my hero's on screen and people are excited to see him, uh, I feel pretty good too. So, um, yeah, you know, Shazam came and went. And uh, if you haven't seen it yet, I strongly suggest you do. It's a lot of fun. It could be better, but for what it is, I really enjoyed it. And I, I would love to see what David F. Sandberg could do if he had a higher budget, if he could kind of, you know, uh, go a little further. And, uh, you know, who knows? Who knows? But either way, Shazam is a very good start for what is a nice little, you know, uh, yeah, it, w it looks like what it's amounting to be like the Ant-Man of the worlds of DC. Kind of like, a, you know, you get what I'm going for here. Uh, something else that came up while I was away was, uh, yeah, the, and I'm only going to touch on this very briefly because I really don't think it's much of a story. And I, I don't want to insult those to whom this is very important. And please, if I'm missing the point, feel free to educate me over on the Twitter I have a feeling uh, Dr. Ross Geller might, but uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. There's this story about how uh, in the original Justice League, in the Snyder Cut, that Ray Porter, the uh, voice actor, uh, Ray Porter had been hired to play Darkseid. And, you know, this headline dominated certain corners of the web for a while, and, and uh, I don't know. I, to me, I, I, I don't get what the big deal is. And that's not to diminish, I don't know, I don't want to be mean or anything, okay? But look, for those of us who already know that 
Snyder already, you know, he completed principal photography and that everything he wanted to include in his cut of the film was shot. Then, and we know that there's a mostly completed version of the movie that, you know, we call the Snyder cut that, you know, that should someone go and they decide to release it either with the slightly unfinished effects or maybe the finished effects, depending on who you believe. But we know that in Snyder's film, there's dark side. So for me, I always just, of course, there was an actor cast as dark side. And okay, so now we know who the guy is. He was basically an unknown who did some voice acting. Okay, great. So now we know who the you know who did the mocap for Dark Side in a cut of the movie that wasn't released. Okay, great. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't know. It, it it was like a big story, and and and, and you know the, the, there was this big attempt to try to make it gain some traction. And Ray Porter's, uh, his celebrity has definitely gone up a little bit and he seems to be having some fun. So I'm happy for what, you know, whatever boost this is giving his career. I'm happy to see that happen for Mr. Porter. But to me, like, if we, you know, we know that there was going to be dark side in the Snyder Cut. And we all, and a lot of people, you know, we, we've kind of accepted that there is indeed a Snyder Cut. It may or may not be completed, but there is the footage for it. And if there's the footage for it, then there was an actor there who played Dark Side. So to me, it's like, yeah, of course. You know, it's a, to me, it's just, it, it's a story that came up that, you know, I just spent, you know, I don't know, three minutes talking about it. And I think that's about as much as it deserves. But please, if, I, if I'm missing why that that was such a big revelation please you know school me somebody i want to know um yeah i want to know why it's such a big deal that we discovered who the actor was that played dark side in you know in snyder's version of the film you know i i just i i don't necessarily get that um and then you know i gotta talk about the rise of skywalker i have to talk about the rise of skywalker because, you know, Star Wars for me, that, that, that's another one of my personal tent poles. You know, we talk about tent poles, right? You know, tent pole movies. But there are certain tent poles in my fandom. And Star Wars is another one. You know, if, if DC's number is my main boo, is my main tent pole, my other, you know, Star Wars is the other. And this resurgence of Star Wars since 2015 for me has been a total blast. You know, I, I really think that they've been handling things very, very well. And, you know, I and, and, I, and I say that just in terms of the final product. Listen, I know that there's been all kinds of interesting behind the scenes stuff. And there's things that, you know, that have happened that, that have occurred between Kathleen Kennedy and these directors. And, you know, there, there, there's definitely bochinche and behind the scenes chaos to discuss. But in terms of the final product... I've been very satisfied with all but one. And even the one that I wasn't in love with, I still enjoyed. You know, I didn't hate it. You know, but going one by one, you know, I loved The Force Awakens, and I still do. And I do so unapologetically, thank you. Uh, I love Rogue One. I adored Rogue One. And I, you know, I, I don't, I just, I will fight anyone who, who, who tries to tell me that that film is anything less than stellar. Then there's, you know, The Last Jedi, which that's the one that's kind of my, you know, it's a B. I enjoyed it. 
I, you know, to me, I walked in wanting it to be an A plus. I was ready to respond to it as if it were an A plus. I, it was one of those where I, I walked into the theater with a full head of steam, ready to love this thing, and I just I ran into a wall instead. And uh, you know, so that was my that was the one that was like, eh, all right. And then there's Solo, a Star Wars story, which, you know, if you guys haven't heard it yet for, for Patreon patrons, you know, Brett, Vanessa, and I recorded an audio commentary for that one, where really, you know, that was the second time I'd ever seen the film. And I really just, that movie is so unfortunately underrated. It's a great little twisty, turny heist movie with really fun performances and great plotting. And, you know, the Kasdans did a great job on that script. And Ron Howard deserves so much credit for coming in and, in, you know, inheriting a very strange situation and making a film that feels so cohesive, making a film that feels just, you would never, you, you know, you don't see the, 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 the stitches on this. You don't see the seams on this where it's like, let's see which part of this is Ron Howard, which part of this is Lord and Miller. And listen, for anyone who followed Justice League, you know how hard that is. You know how hard that is because in that film, it's very abundantly clear who directed what, you know, it's very, you know, it's just, it's, 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 it's a, it's a tough task. And Ron Howard found a way to do it. And I give him so much credit for that. But that's all to say that I've really enjoyed this resurgence of, resurgence of Star Wars. And to see that trailer now for the rise of Skywalker was just, it brought me like, I don't know. It brought me back. It brought me back to like the beginning of this resurgence. Suddenly it felt new again. You know, because as much as I've enjoyed these films, there's also just, you know, there, there has been a little of that, like, you know, the quote unquote Star Wars fatigue where like they kind of became less special a little bit. You know what I mean? And even Solo, which I enjoyed in theaters, it didn't feel like a must see event, you know? So Star Wars, even though I was enjoying the films, it felt a little bit kind of like, you know, old hat. It was becoming commonplace. And I was starting to wonder, you know, would Star Wars ever be able to give me those feels again? And then that trailer came out. And, you know, J.J. Abrams, man, he's just a monster, that guy. He just knows. He just knows what he's doing. And, you know, listen, I know he's got his detractors. I know there are some people who probably roll their eyes when I, when I give him so much credit and when I fanboy for, for Abrams because, uh, I don't know, his lens flares or whatever. But you know what? I think J.J. Abrams is just, you know, he's, he, he's the creme de la creme right now. He's A-list. And that's not to say he's the best director in Hollywood right now, but I think he deserves a ton of credit for what he's done with Star Wars, what he's done with Star Trek, what he's done with Mission Impossible. You know, his fingerprints are, are all over the resurgence of some really beloved classic franchises that needed a shot in the arm. And Abrams always seems to be that shot in the arm. And yeah, he can get a little self-indulgent and he can kind of retread certain things. And he, you know, listen, every filmmaker has their pitfalls and that's why he's not the best filmmaker in all of Hollywood. But, for what he does, he deserves so much credit for bringing these beloved things 
back to life, dusting, getting off all the mothballs, dusting them off and making them fresh and exciting and breathing new life into them again. In this climate in Hollywood, where Hollywood is constantly trying to find old properties and trying to see what old thing can we make new again? What old beloved item can we you know, try to get going and try to squeeze some more money out of? At a time like this, Abrams is the golden goose. You know, he just seems to have that Midas touch where it's like, OK, I will find something old and I will make it awesome for you. And, um, you know, specifically about the rise of Skywalker, I'm just I'm so intrigued by so much. And I wonder how much of it is misdirection because you know how Abrams loves his, you know, his uh, what do they call it? His his secret box or whatever it is. You know, he loves to surprise. He loves to throw you off. He wants everything to be, you know, a discovery. He wants everything to be a surprise. And listen, I love that. That's one of the things that makes me appreciate him so much. But in watching it, you know, it, it, it's, it was very interesting to me to see how much of it felt like a clapback at The Last Jedi. And listen, you know, there, there's different ways to interpret different things, Right. But if, if what one of the, you know, mainstay complaints about The Last Jedi is that Luke Skywalker got killed off and a lot of people are upset that they didn't get more time with Luke, you know, having him be the person narrating the trailer is a great way to message, you know, to, to sound the alarm that, hey, you're going to get more Luke. And, you know, if you were kind of put off by that Kylo Ren aesthetic, which seemed to be a, you know, the movie's general philosophy of let the past die, having that line in there at the end about we're never really gone, is I, I swear it feels like a reaction. It feels like a reaction to some of the stuff that Ryan Johnson did to The Last Jedi and did with The Last Jedi. And I, I don't know, for, for me, I enjoy that. And uh, that's just that's just the way it goes. Uh, and, you know, having the emperor laugh at the end is opens up a big can of worms because it makes you just start wondering, you know, how many characters are coming back? Is this going to get too big and overstuffed? Like, you know, it's you know, th th there are those little concerns that I get in the back of my mind. But overall, I found the trailer to be so sort of epic in scope. And it felt grand and like Star Wars and it felt mythic and having it really having it tell you that this is the end of the saga. I mean, you know, to be able to see the culmination of 42 years of storytelling is going to be an unbelievable experience that for me this December and, you know, I really do. I. I, I constantly, when I look at life, I try to look for universal truth. I look for things that are ageless and timeless and doesn't matter where you are, when you lived and where on this earth you were born. It's true for you. And when I think about this stuff, I think about the universal truth of storytelling. All of us getting to partake in the tradition of storytelling. That's what movies like this are like. That's what events like tonight are like, Avengers Endgame. That's what, you know, when a new Star Wars comes out, when a new huge movie comes out and people flock to the theaters to sit alongside one another and partake 
and the, the, the spark of imagination of a filmmaker and a writer putting together a story, committing it to film, and bringing it to life. That is a universal truth. You know, we've always wanted stories. You go back thousands of years, you had campfire stories. You go back, you know, then theater was born in ancient Greece. Then little by little, you know, it's just, we've always, as, as, as a species, loved to congregate and listen to great stories being told. And little by little, those stories became, you know, visual in nature. And now the epitome of that is getting to go see a film like this. And that's not to overstuff that Avengers Endgame is going to be, you know, the next Godfather or Gone with the Wind. I'm not trying to say that the film is destined to be an instant classic. But to create a film that's a cultural event like this, where it's on the tips of everyone's tongues, where it's set to break all these box office records. Why? Because people just care so much. People got to get in on this. They got to go see it and they got to go see it now and they got to go see it together because they don't want to they don't want to have it spoiled for them. They don't want to be the one who's left out of the conversation around the water cooler on Monday. This is an entire culture coming together to celebrate the like imaginations being brought to life to see superheroes fighting villains good triumphing over evil these things have been around since the beginning of time and to now kind of see it you know see this new latest incarnation of it and to get to tap into that main line of love and passion and fandom and celebrating something that brings us joy for those three hours and two minutes, yeah, you may not get a pee break, but you get to share in something together. And you get to share in something positive together. Right now with the world, with all the uncertainty going on around us, for three minutes we can unplug from all of that and head into a universe that's been carefully plotted out for the last 11 years by people who want to tell you fun, awesome stories about really cool characters like, how lucky are we right now? We are living in the best of times. And I hope you all see that. And I hope you all honor and appreciate that. Because this is, this is what it's all for. Moments like these. When you can get together and just be happy. Just be happy for a couple hours. And you don't even have to do anything. All you got to do is buy a ticket and sit down. I can't, you can't put a price tag on that. I love movies, what can I say? But listen up, folks. Thanks for waiting for a month. And uh, I will be back every week. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be back on a regular schedule. This week's episode is a little on the short side because, again, it's the wee hours of the morning on Thursday and I have a very long Friday ahead of me. And I want to be at least somewhat coherent for Avengers Endgame and I want to not fall asleep before we blow out the candles on my mom's birthday cake this afternoon so um, everyone thanks for listening thanks for your patience I'm back and I got some pretty cool stuff coming up especially for episode 100 so stay tuned for that until next week my friends life is chaos be kind adios